of these, um, basically the whole ball of this sense of false teaching of things that are not from Christ. And God is saying that I want to use Paul to really encourage the body of what does it look like to fight the dangers of false teaching. And it seems so important for him because it seems that the stakes are high. Uh, If you really think about it in our lives, I mean, we all are subject to to false teaching. And I think there's false teaching all up in this room. And so God wants to do uh, a great work in us. So basically the paramount uh, that Christ wants us to get that what you believe affects everything about you. And so that's why he really wants to, he wants to tackle this issue. So think about it. Think of, think of everything you do. Uh, and we talk about this in our discipleship time. Everything is girded by your belief system, right? I mean, something as simple as, in, as investing. You know, if I invest in, in, a, in a stock, uh, I'm, my belief is that it's going to go up, right? And so my, and it motivates my work, which makes me put money into it because I want to receive a return on investment, right? If I believe that I get my identity met in having nice clothes and having a car or whatever, then I'm going to find myself working toward that end because I think that's where I'm going to get my satisfaction. I'm going to get my identity. So what we believe will affect what we do. And Jesus understands that. So he wants to make sure that he corrects our thinking so that we can have correct worship. All right. Um, so with that said, that's sort of just what's going on in chapter 2. So I want to start with verse 8. Understanding that that's where, he's, that's where he's wanting to go. He starts by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. Notice that, guys. By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, depends on your translations. I don't think he, right here he's, and I, and I think the theologians agree with me, I don't think what he's doing here is giving you all the different ways you can be deceived. He's, this is like one big thing. It's like take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So he's saying any, just by thinking and empty deceit, uh, that deceit being according to human tradition, right? So that anything that's not of God, it's like we made up. So this is still one big pot, right? This is like he's not saying don't be held captive by philosophy or deceit or you see the difference. He's saying that it's all lies and it's all in one big pot. And he doesn't have time to try and bifurcate it. So he's saying, don't let things take you captive by philosophy and into deceit, which is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That you're thinking, the way you think philosophy, the way you think, should always be according to Christ and, and according to nothing else. In fact, here, this whole elemental spirits of the world, which is I would propose, if you're doing a grammatical diagram, is he's saying all these things, and they, they, come, they find themselves in the elemental spirits of the world because these guys had all kind of gods, right? They had a huge pantheon. So they believed in gods of the air, god of the water, you, you name it. And he's saying that all that stuff, like that's, those, are, those are empty things. Don't find your hope uh, in those things. And he uses the word, take you captive, it's a very powerful term um, when you think of deception because he's talking about it's almost this picture of uh, incarceration, right? Being imprisoned. Uh, don't let things, don't let stuff that's outside of Jesus capture you and imprison you. It's his thinking here. And so in essence, he's saying, listen, guys, you don't compromise Christ. All right. And what he does here, I love in this passage is he just, man, he gives an argument. I think he gives like four. So give four big picture arguments of why we're not supposed to compromise Christ, which is what we're doing when we're taken captive by anything outside of the knowledge and beauty of Christ. So when we believe a lie, he said, oh, no, you're held captive. But there's four there's four reasons why we as a people of God 
don't need to be held captive and should not be held captive. The first, he says, for in him, in verse 9, for in him, the wholeness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is ahead of all rule and authority. He starts in verse 9. Look what he says. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, guys. He says, first, the first reason why you and me should not be held captive is because, he says, guys, all the deity dwells in his bodily form of Christ. His point there is that you can't, there's no other godness anywhere else. And so for these guys, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing searching for, you know, these other pantheons, this God of the air, this God of water, when all of God dwells only in Jesus? You can't get any godness, any God outside of the person of Christ. He's like begging us to understand that the very thing we want to satisfy us, you cannot find outside of Jesus Christ. And my friend uses a, he uses a term, he, tried, he talks about like having a cup of water, and he did a really good example of like, if you have a cup of water, and this was the only cup of water in the whole world, right? And he was like, you know, and you, you get thirsty. And someone says, well, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm going to get some water. And then you can't go to a faucet. This is the only cup of water in the whole world. This is where the water is. It's nowhere else. Well, I won't, I'm going to brush my teeth. Well, I think I'll go, no, you can't go anywhere and brush your teeth because this is the only cup of water. It's only here. Right? If you want any aspect of water, you have to get it out of this cup. Christ is trying to say to you and me, like, to go and try to find your essence or some sense of God somewhere else. It's absolutely crazy because God is only found in Jesus. Now, deity can't be found anywhere else. And the implications, now here's the cool about that, is he's dogging all these other things, these, all, these other powers that these guys in the first centuries are dealing with, right? Because what he's saying in essence is that the very powers that you see as powerful are no power at all if I'm the only one that holds the power. So he's rendering every, everything that seems to have power as powerless because he's saying it doesn't because I'm the only one who possesses all power. Now, when you look at this, you might think, well, I don't uh, struggle with, you know, uh, water gods and, you know, and I don't struggle with fire gods, right? You might be thinking that, so it might not be hitting you home, right? You might be thinking, well, come on, Eric, bring it down home. But let's continue to look at what the, what the text says here. He says, the second reason, so he says, first, all of God is in Christ. That's, that's one of the reasons why you and me, we should be able to say, no, I, I don't need to be held captive by all these other vain things. But he says also, everything is in Christ and Jesus heads and rules all. He rules all those very things that you're finding our identity in. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. If you're not part of this, you know, desire of having to fire God, the question is, what, what do you find yourself subjecting to? What powers do we find ourselves subjecting to? Do you find yourself subjecting to any powers? Right? Um, wanting a boyfriend? Uh, do you find yourself subjecting to the power of wealth? Uh, do you find yourself subjecting to the power of, of sexuality? Um, do you find yourself subjecting to the power of relationships? Uh, appearance? Community? Religiosity, intellect, he, he, 
in the first century, he was talking about God of the air, God of water. But what do we find ourselves now subjecting ourselves to? Because God is saying it's just as demonic and horrid. Because those very things that have power in our lives should have no power because all the power of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ. This is his point. He says he rules and heads them all. Third reason. He says it's all in Jesus. The godness, all that we want is in Christ. He says, listen, Christ has saying all those powers actually can't be powers because I have all powers. So he heads and rules them all. And his point there is not that they have power. He kind of be, he, he's more he's like just more powerful. He said they don't even have power. And we're going to see that toward the end of the text. And then finally here he says, well, listen, and then what I do is I give you a promise as a people of God. He says in the scriptures, I give you a promise. Go back and, and, and look at the text there. He says that uh, we will be filled in him. Turn to your Bibles. Do you see it, what he says there? Look what he says there. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. In verse 10, who is the head of all rule and authority. He says, he says, listen, see, the reason why you and I should not be held captive by all these vain teachings and philosophies and these things that hold us. And, and, and you know, when I, when I counsel and I look at my own life and I, and I see our body and I look, I go around our city and I see these, all the stuff that's holding us captive. He's saying it shouldn't because basically we should be filled in Christ. So, well, what does that look like? And, and, and what does that really mean to be filled in Christ? Because I was thinking to myself, you know, a lot of times I know we teach, you, we should find our satisfaction only in Jesus. And, and that's absolutely true. But the question I'm asking myself is I look around, I talk to unbelievers, people who don't love Christ or people who fool themselves and thinking that they're, you know, they, they know Christian facts, but they haven't given their life to Christ. It's interesting that I think people in their, in their hearts really think they're satisfied. So what's going on there? Because it seems that people aren't walking around going, oh, I just need something. I need something. And we go, oh, you, oh, you need Christ. It seems like people are, are actually kind of like, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to deal with church and kingdom and serving people and community and all that. Right? Um, well, the question I ask myself, uh, and I'll ask you guys, is does Jesus not satisfy or are we satisfied so easily, too easily? I, I mean, I, C.S. Lewis, I think he's the first who, who started this whole this, this concept of it's, it's almost like we, we are so easily satisfied that we don't even get to experience the glory of what can truly satisfy us. I think that's really what happens in the world. It's, it's that it's almost um, it reminds me of like, you know, when I when I see a single mom, you know, in our in our community, one of my neighbors, you know, and and then I, I watch how she has this. This punk of a dude, you know, who's not taking care of her and her kids, um, who abuses her emotionally, you know. And then I would look at her, and she kind of sits there as if, well, this is the best I'm going to get. And so she thinks, this is, this, is, this is okay. This is how it's supposed to be. And she just settles. She just kind of settles. It's like, the, it's, it reminds me of, like, my, my, my little boy, Eli. 
You know, he's in the backyard and he's digging up a big old mud pile. You know, he we had this big old hole in our yard for a while. And I'm like, we got to we got to fill this hole. They just kept digging. And it was just mud. And they start taking these nasty red berries and they started putting these berries in the mud. And they find these. And it became this nasty mud pile. And it's interesting to me, like, here's Eli in this nasty mud pile making his mud pie. And if I was to say to him, hey, Eli, man, let's just go right now as a family to the, to the shore. Let's go to the, uh, to the Lake, Lake Michigan and hang out. Let's go to, uh, just fly the whole family to San Francisco. You know, he would not want to do that at all. He would want to stay with his old mud pie. And he'll be like, I don't want to go. I want to, I want to play in the mud. It's almost like a kid who is so content in like building mud pies that they don't even see the riches that they can have. I'm convinced that's how we are. As we walk with Christ, it's that we're so settled on getting a TV or buying a car or a relationship or having some people know us, being known or being smart. And we, we're so satisfied by all these worldly desires that we can't even grasp hold of what God wants for us. And God is going, there's these riches of glory that I promise to fulfill you. I promise to, to give you uh, excitement and satisfaction. But yet your belly's so small, you don't even have the capacity to taste it anymore. I wonder if there's something about, it's not about people in our world just simply walking around not satisfied. I wonder if there's something about that, man, we're satisfied so easily that we miss what we can truly have. Well, the scriptures say that Christ wants to fill us and that we can experience the beauty of Jesus. But man, it seems that we have to do something with our appetite. And man, there's something where we have to ask the Lord to now give us the capacity to want to experience a God-centered appetite, a God-sized appetite, and not just these simple things like sex, you know, and porn, you know, and, and money and cheating for our own self-aggrandizement and, and dissension, you know, to get what we want and bitterness and lying, right? And, and haphazard spirituality, protection of ourself. He says, man, what a, what a crummy appetite. Macav, I pray our appetite will be bigger. I pray our appetite will want Christ, will want God. We wouldn't just want humans. Number four, guys, he tells us, man, I've given you a God-sized appetite. He says, this is why you, shouldn't, you don't have to settle for these things, right? I'm the one. Everything, all of God's in me, right? All of God's in me. I'm ruling all things created and uncreated. I promise I will fill you. I'm the one who can fill you. And the reason why I can fill you is because you've been born again. You've been born supernaturally. Look what it says. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made uh, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now don't miss what he's doing here, guys. So he's setting this picture. He's saying, okay, there's deceptive teaching. 
It's grabbing you. It's grabbing hold of you in different ways. It's trying to grab hold of me. I find, we find ourselves pray to it all the time. He says, you don't have to go there. Why? First and foremost, because of Jesus. Because of who Jesus is. He is the God. All of God's in him. He rules everything. He has promised to fulfill you. He has promised to be your all in all. How is he going to do that? How does he do that? Because he rebirths us spiritually. He does a work in you spiritually so that you can now have the capacity to have a God-sized appetite again. You don't have to have a human appetite. I don't have to have a human appetite. We can sup at the feast of the king. He says, and look what he says here. He gives a lot of terminology here, and I want to, I got it now. Now stick with me here. This is going to get kind of crazy because there's two things I want to do. I want to explain the text, but I also want to make my case uh, why I think this is some evidence of why I'm a Baptist. So I thought I'd throw that out. All right, so, okay, which that means that basically I, I believe this, this local body believes that there's something that God is doing in the ordinance of, of baptism when we uh, fully immerse people. So I'm going to give it the whole college try on you guys. And we have, we have paedo-baptists here too, but it's cool that I have the mic so y'all can talk to them afterwards. So, all right, so let me show you what's happening in the Old Testament. So, the scriptures say, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. OK, uh, there's a sense uh, in scripture uh, where, where God is already talking about in the Old Testament, although they didn't get it. The revelatory component of it wasn't there. But he was clear that he, he was never about just having an ethnic group be the people of God. But he wanted something better. He wanted something more. Right. He wanted a spiritual people. Verse 30. I'm sorry. Chapter 30, verse six. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, that you may live. So God is kind of saying you're evil. But what God wants to do is he's going to do something. He's going to circumcise your heart. And so circumcision, I propose uh, what they were doing physically was actually a dramatization of what God wanted to do spiritually in people. He wanted he wanted to take the flat that 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 heart and flesh off of the heart so that it'll be a heart of flesh so people can love Jesus. Okay, we're all on the same page so far? Okay, that's what's happening. That's what's been happening throughout history. This is what God wanted to do. Uh, in saying this, he was saying, hey, it's not just simply people who are born an Israelite, but it's people who are born uh, in, their, in a circumcision of their heart. One more verse. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. See, so why, why is he using this terminology? Because they understand this terminology because they were a circumcised people, correct? So he says, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's telling these guys, I want you to be born, born of the heart, not just of the flesh. Okay, guys? All right. So first thing we see, the image of cutting something off is a new ideal of circumcision, right? That's what he's saying. If you look in your text, it's this, new, it's this idea of what God is saying in the text there. It's just as they cut off the foreskin of the male, he's saying what he wants to do in the people, uh, his people, when he rebirths us, is he wants to cut off the, the, the old nature, the sinful nature, okay? Now... This is, this is interesting, okay? Because many of us, we can really, we can live as if, no, there's not an old nature, but basically you got this nature that's alive, and then you got this new nature that's alive, and it's kind of just going crazy. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches when you're born again that actually he cuts, he cuts the old nature off of you. But some of us, it's so, we, we see, it's so, it's so warring, we're like, how could that be? 
Okay, that's his point here. So you see here's a spiritual circumcision, right? There's a stripping off of the flesh that's very clear in Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 6. You can write that address down. So here's, so here's the point. So when he makes all those statements, he's first saying he wants us to get this new idea that God is cutting off that old man from you and me. And this is why we can have a God-sized appetite. He's stripping off the flesh. He's taking it and saying, no, you don't have to live like that, people of God. The crucifixion of our old self and destruction of the sinful body is what he's trying to propose to you and me. You get that? He's saying when you become a Christian, he's saying that actually there is now a crucifixion of the old self. The the, the old self dies. It gets murdered. Killing the old nature through new birth is assumed and is not a prerequisite and is a prerequisite to putting on a new nature. You get that? So what he's saying here is that when we... Basically, it's not that you become a Christian and you who you are and then God puts on a new nature on top of you. okay? and now you're just schizophrenic. That's not what he's saying. He's saying actually what he's assuming that the prerequisite to spiritual birth is that the old nature dies. Okay, And then we put on a new nature, which we'll see more in Colossians chapter 4. The body of flesh, our sin nature, has been taken away through Christ. So he's, 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 see, this is what, this is what makes this deep, right? This is crazy for us, right? Because he's trying to implore us. He's saying, guys, I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you the old nature's dead. That's what he's trying to say to you and me. For you and me who feel like the old nature is so alive in us. He said, Eric, I'm begging you to believe Christ. That the old nature is dead and now you have power over all that stuff. That's his point. So look, he says, he says, in him you're also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, right? Spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power, powerful working of God. Now, that, I, that's theology. Now I want to propose to you, notice how he talks about, and look at the flow of thought for uh, Paul, and then see why the whole baptism thing, just, it kind of makes sense to, uh, to me. So first he talks about made, it's made without hands. Uh, so Jesus cuts away the old sinful body, and he makes us new. So that's new birth, correct? Okay, and then what you see all throughout here and all throughout Scripture um, is when you always have the imagery of resurrection, spiritual circumcision, and baptism all being interwoven. Have you noticed that? You never see baptism talked about with just people. Usually baptism is used to discuss uh, the dramatization of what happens to us spiritually, right? Just as you, like Jesus right, was dead, buried, and rose, it seems like that's the same dramatization that you get all throughout Scripture with the baptism. Is that just as that happens, when people are baptized, they're, they're dead, they, they die, they're buried in the water, and they rise again. Now, does it save you? Absolutely not. But is it a clear marker of just trying to, trying to show the world what God did and what we are doing, what he's doing in us spiritually? That's the question. So when you look at well, Romans 6, 4, when you look at even this passage we're talking about right now, it seems that this whole baptism piece. Now, 
The theological framework of baptism means immersion, baptizo, identification, immersion. So that's just the theological definition. That's what it means, okay? Um, however, we have to understand that when he's using these terms, the assumption in the first century is he's obviously, he's talking about people being baptized, okay? Uh, that's just, that just is what it is. Even my, my pedo friends won't disagree with that in these first century texts here, okay? So the question is, why is he saying these things? Why does he... If, if it's simply, which I believe uh, with, with people who baptize infants, I do believe uh, that, uh, that baptism replaces uh, the ordinance ordained, ordinance, the ordinance of circumcision for the new people of God. But the question is why and what is it representing? Um, I'm saying baptism communicates the old is done with the new order has begun. Uh, and it seems that when we look at this test, it all happens through faith. And even in Galatians 3.27, it talks about uh, this happening through faith. And so I'm just proposing to you guys that it seems that to talk about baptism without talking about faith and people being born again uh, spiritually, just it seems to me it doesn't make much sense in the mind of Paul. Now, I'll give it to people who say, but everyone who's baptized, we don't know if they're believers or not. Because, right, you can get baptized and then you see people out doing the same thing and, and not modeling Christ. And I say, I'd rather sleep with those problems than the other problems that I think the people who are baptizing chil- uh, children have. I think that, that problem of, like, what do you do with people who aren't sincere is not an issue to me as much as that, the, the, the identification of what it means. So I can't, I can't control a person's heart, but when a person, go, when a person says, I want to be baptized, here is what it means. Um, so this all happens through faith. Um, so I'm proposing there seems to be a revelatory shift from physical to spiritual, uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, from old people, uh, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Uh, there seems to be a revelatory shift, and that is from physical uh, to spiritual. That God was saying in the Old Testament that, you know, to be the people of God, to, to have a covenant community, you're going to do circumcision. And that what God does is then he says, as a new people of God, we're going to do circumcision, but it's going to be spiritual circumcision. Uh, so therefore, I would say, yes, baptism, baptizing newborns uh, is what God says, but spiritual newborns, not human newborns. So I'm proposing that, that the reason why we do this, by, for your information, baptism by immersion, because it seems that God wants us to follow in line with that spiritual identity piece and saying that we baptize people who are born again spiritually, uh, not just simply people who are going to be in the covenant community. So um, yeah, y'all can be mad, argue with me later about that. Uh, that's... <clears throat> My little ploy for the baptism piece. Um, But in a nutshell, I hope you see what he's saying in the text there is that you have been born again spiritually. You have been you've died with Christ. Your old nature has been stripped off. And now you have been taken up out of the grave. And now you walk out of the grave with Jesus Christ. And now you can be the man and woman you're called to be. And this is one of the main reasons why you don't have to be deceived uh, and listen to vain philosophy. And then finally what he does, he says, because of that, so you have these four issues. You have you, uh, all the deities in Jesus. Uh, he rules everyone. You guys, um, you've, been born, you've been born again spiritually. Um, Jesus fulfills you. And then he says, because you've been born again spiritually, this is almost like the sub points. Uh, these things can happen, verses 13 through 15. First, he says, first, Jesus forgives us of all of our transgressions. Because you've been born again spiritually, he says, hey, you don't have to live in a grave any longer. You don't have to be subject to these, 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 these deceptions and, and these vain teachings because God is saying no longer are you held as a transgressor. Okay? He is now forgiving you. You are his child now. He also tells us 
And because of that, the the guilt is gone. Look what he says in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt. It's almost this picture of someone standing there and saying, no, you still owe me. Excuse me. What what Jesus does, he says, no, you don't have that lingering guilt. There's no one standing over you anymore saying, no, you are still this way because that has been stripped away and I pay for it on the cross. So this is, so he's saying, so Jesus forgave us of our sin. The lingering guilt is gone. And then finally, Christ is Lord and all forces must submit to him. Okay. And his point there is both those benign forces, forces that, you know, people don't even think about. That's, I think that's where we are today. Money, power, all those things. And then some of the spiritual forces that sort of have people captive and have people captive in other countries, even like voodoo. Uh, I mean, you think of all the different things that people are finding themselves worshiping. He's saying both, both active and benign forces, they're all subject to me. His point is that they're all or nothing, but they're all subject to me. And because of that, you should not be held it's objection to any of this stuff. It's a cry out to the local body. It's a cry out to the body as a whole for you and me to say, man, like, why do we find ourselves fighting and, 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 and thinking that there's something else that's as powerful or maybe a little more less powerful, but, but still has control of me when God is saying all the powers in me and I freed you, I've rebirthed you. I've made you new. I've set you on a new course. You now have the power to say no to anything that is false because you have my power. Very clear. The question I'd ask, the question that I had to ask my heart this week as I just was just thinking like, man, Lord, it was like, what? What holds me captive? What holds me captive? What makes me not experience something that seems so clear to Paul? Something so clear to Paul. The power of Jesus reigning over all. Here's what we left with, God. Nothing has power to influence you because you belong to Christ. That's his point. And he wants us to come out of the grave and to live victoriously because of that reality. That if, and now you've got the, the scriptures and the verses that pop in your head. You know, who's, if, if, if uh, he is for us, who can be against us? You know, all your, all, your, all your Sunday school. This is his point. The reason why you can say all those things is because of who God is. Lee? Good question. Yeah, I was thinking about that this weekend. I was like, man, so how do you know uh, if you're being held captive to something? You know, can you say it again? I love that. Tell me why you say that, sis. Man, I, I'm, conv- I'm telling you guys, that's the reason why I love our local body, but that's the reason why we get so, I think, I think we get so nervous in this local body because we're actually taking God at his word and we're trying to really call out sin in each other. And you know what? That is very, that's very scary and painful, but it's also great joy because you find yourself being willing, if your heart's right in Christ, to say no to those elemental spirits. 
Uh, so she, so, so, so sits that community. And I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, 15 years of ministry, of discipling people, five years here, a little over five years. And one thing I've always seen is, is one of the first steps to people being deceived is they, they, they disrupt their community. They leave their community influence. That's just, that's just drama one-on-one. They, they start, they, they say, okay, I have a thinking so now what I got to do, I got I to gotta isolate. And then what they do, and then what you do is you got to find people who agree with your crazy thinking. Okay? So you got to go, so who around here is going to agree with me? So I'll be real chill until I find a few people, then I'll speak a little louder. This is what we do. And what, what, what Jesus says, we don't have to do this, guys. We don't have to self-protect. But man, God gives us community so that we might be more like Christ. So, uh, yeah, community is huge. Does anyone else have an insight? Caleb? Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, guys, I'm just, I, I mean, it seems simple, the reality of Christ, but when you think of it, so what, what, how do we determine it, guys? I, I would just say, uh, finally, um, that we determine lies when you think of, like, what has most of my attention other than Christ? When you determine where your worth is and where your value is, I think it's a good question to ask. What would make you say no uh, to Jesus? And if we're honest, I think uh, this is one of those texts that can be revolutionary if we're honest and can just be like, oh, that's just like Sunday school if we're not. So uh, my prayer is for us to be a church where, um, man, we would just experience like, what does it mean to understand I belong to Christ Therefore, I have, I, nothing has power over me. Nothing. We can live triumphant, guys. Hey, um, let's celebrate the Lord. We're going we're gonna, to uh, 